Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. And means in war. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to be talking about the ends and means in war. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about a game that I had recently that was a lot of fun. Uh, my buddy Toto came over, and if you'll recall, I was teaching him how to play Kill Team. Well, I decided that he was ready for the big leagues. And so we moved up to a 500-point game. The matchup was between the Death Guard and the Jade Guardians, which are a, a homebrew chapter of mine. And so the Jade Guardians had a Redemptor Dreadnought, two squads of six Intercessors, and a Primaris Tech Marine to back it up. A pretty, pretty balanced little section there. The Death Guard was actually a speed list, which I know sounds weird because... Death Guard and Speed are usually not terms that you hear together in the same sentence. But in this particular case, it worked out really well. Had a Demon Prince with wings, had two fetid bloat drones with the Plague Spitters, and a gaggle of Poxwalkers in tow. So, again, the Death Guard was, was situated a little bit differently, and he went with the Death Guard list, a more speed-oriented list. The game type that we were playing had, uh, well, normally the objectives... If you move toward them, you occupy them. But if you move away from the zone that you know, is like the occupation zone, you no longer get points for it. In this particular game type, you kept or, uh, objectives if you took them, even if you moved away from them. And so that speed-oriented list uh, that he had played a really good effect and used them very well. Got up the field quick, put that pressure on me, and the end score ended up being 49-45 which he won. He won by four points. His first 40K game won by four points. I was so proud. Now, I didn't want to gotcha hammer him. And so we went through and I explained what each of his units were and what they did and kind of what their perks were and answered any questions he might have had. I made sure he understood the various rules at play because, again, I didn't want to, didn't want to gotcha hammer him. There's no fun if there's no sport. So now I know that I can break out the big leagues because he definitely knows what he's doing. So, great job, Toto. That was a lot of fun. Um, and that's that's really all I got for the intro today, guys. Um, you know, things carry on as they as they have typically been doing here, and uh, people are we're keeping safe, and hope y'all are keeping safe and enjoying the last bits of good weather that we're going to have for a while, at least here in the northern hemisphere. Uh, those of those listeners in Australia, you guys are just coming out of your cold season, so. Looking forward to some summer down there. Yeah. So, 
Uh, without any further ado, let's just go into our first section in which we talk about the ends and means in war and how they lead us on the path to victory. Our main section today concerns how we use the ends and means in war to secure our path to victory. Because that's the whole point of this, right? I mean, we're here to have fun. We're here to enjoy our friendships and uh, have the com community and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, the majority of us who are involved in these sorts of communities, these wargaming communities, we're in it to win it. So how do we get there? What ends and means are we striving for? Well, before we really delve into this idea, I want to just talk for a second about this idea of forces of unequal power. Because this happens all the time, whether it's unequal in terms of numbers, unequal in terms of equipment or training, there is usually some form of inequality between the forces. And as we studied in management of savagery, there's a difference between theory and reality. The theory in the war rooms of the conventional army was that the poorly trained, numerically inferior, and poor equipment having rebels, insurrectionists, whatever you call them, would fold. The theory was that against this vast power, in particular the Soviet Empire, when we were talking about the Soviet-Afghan conflict, there should have been no question of who was going to win that. In terms of theory, reality proved to be something much different. Reality proved that theory has a limit. Theory needs to be thought beyond. Theory is fine in practice, but reality must be studied. Reality must be understood. Because in this way, we can take forces of unequal power and turn them to our advantage. Are we numerically inferior? All right, we take advantage of that and find a way to get local numeric superiority to counter that overall deficit in numbers. Inferior in equipment operate in such a way that the enemy cannot operate their superior equipment in the way that it was designed to operate. There's a lot of ways to do this. A lot of ways to think our way around some sort of unequal object. So while we're thinking of this, remember that all of the theory we discuss here pales in the face of reality. So let's start looking at this theory and how it applies to reality. First, some definitions for this section. There's some terms that we're going to be using quite a bit, and those terms are military power, the country, and the will of the enemy. In terms of wargaming, military power is pretty self-explanatory. It's the forces arrayed on the field or on the table where we're performing our war game. And this could be the, the two different sides, the factions that we're talking about, their various strengths and weaknesses. This is military power. And what we're aiming for when we fight against our enemy's military power is to reduce it to such a degree that it is unable to fight. Take the bite out of what that power is normally able to do. And in doing this, we, it can lead to more country. Now let's talk about the country. 
In this particular case, we're talking about the field or the table that we're playing on. Pretty self-explanatory. And this sustains the growth of power. And a success in taking country can lead to an increase in power, in particular when, the, when we're talking about in history. Moving into a new region meant not just an increase in resources, but new conscripts as well. It was a, a birth of new blood into the, into the army that was moving through. And so in a literal way, when Clausewitz was writing this, the country was a, a fantastic way to actually get more troops as well. And lastly, we have the will of the enemy. And this is a complex thing. When you're studying the, the morale of the enemy and what makes it tick, it's a complex thing to try to understand and to attack. So for here, for our purposes, we're talking about the will of the enemy as the fighting spirit. They're, they're striving to achieve victory as well. Their ability to think on their feet, the fighting spirit. And what we're looking for when we're fighting against our enemy's will is to subdue that will, to force a peace. And again, that's the end of the game. Once we have finished our, uh, our match, we have a, achieved a forced peace. But even before then, the will of the enemy can be broken. We can take away their desire to fight. I've absolutely had opponents who tap out before they should, really, because they, their will is broken. You see it on the field of Belagarth in the SCA, too. Folks who realize that they've lost, and the steam kind of goes out. They deflate. And so this is an important part of this to understand as well. With these definitions in mind now, let's move on to discussing the means in war. Now it should be remembered that there is a symmetrical relationship between military power and country, as we discussed before. When one grows, the other one often grows as well. And as one is reduced, the other is also usually reduced. And so the, the idea is, okay, do we attack military power or country? If they both achieve sort of the same aim, which one is superior to attack, to focus on? And Clausewitz says that the destruction of the army is superior, if possible. If that's not a feasible aim, then absolutely, we're looking for land. And this is a, a very similar thing within wargaming. Our primary objective is often to wipe our opponent off the map. Whether they're the fighters arrayed against us or the models against our models, the idea is the destruction of the enemy's army. But sometimes we might find ourselves in a situation where that's not possible, where we're not going to be able to destroy the other army for one reason or another. And so in that point, we're aiming to take country in hopes that the, the hit to the enemy's power will be significant enough to stagger them. Remember the game I was talking about with Toto, where he, he technically had the less military power and he knew he couldn't destroy my army, but he was able to get up there and get those points and win the game. So even though the army destruction is superior, I basically destroyed his army and it didn't give me victory. It's something to consider in the games that we play. But also with this, we have to consider that these military uh, expenditures are costly. And so we are also thinking about the preservation of our force. We don't want to just be throwing our troops, throwing our fighters willy-nilly into combat where they're just going to be destroyed. 
we're not going to get those back in that particular round. Obviously, when the round is over, we clean up our models or we pick up our friends and we go back and we do it again. But in the terms of that particular match, a fighter lost is a fighter lost. That's a sword arm that is then off the field. A unit wiped off the table is a unit that can no longer be used to score. So the preservation of force is important, but these, this and the, and the idea of military expenditure must be balanced. If we go for, too far in one direction or the other, it leads to a handicap when it comes to prosecuting our particular war. As we've discussed, if one is too timid with one's forces, if one is too focused on the preservation of one's army, one will hesitate to use it. One will not take opportunities. A person may bypass their path to victory on account of their idea that preservation is the best. And on the converse side, if folks are too eager to join into battle, if they are too high in the expenditure of force, well, then the army is not going to be able to prosecute its war for very long. So, this is important when we consider our means. The army is our main means to achieve victory, and we have to make sure that it sticks around until we do so. And so when we're talking about this, the army, the means is the creation and maintenance of the army, and all of this terminates in battle. Everything about what we're doing here terminates in battle. So that's, I mean, like, and that's all the things. That's, we're assembling and we're painting our models, and it's not just to make them look good. It's not just to have a pretty-looking army. It's that way for battle. We've assembled them to be able to take to some sort of national tournament or just to look real good at our local gaming store. But it's still designed to do that. If we're looking at Belagarth or the SCA or any other uh, personal fighting societies, this is true as well. There are all sorts of other activities that are taken part in. There's, there's various feast activities, you have garb making, you have weapon smithing, you have leather smithing, all of these different activities. All of these different ideas and approaches, but they all lead to one thing. We're a fighting community. And so the garb is tailored to be able to use in combat. The food is designed to be able to be eaten at certain times concerning combat. And I could go on and on, but all of these activities, they lead to battle. And even though all of these, even though everything we do terminates in the battle, there are infinite applications of battle to influence the outcome of a war or a particular conflict. We as people occasionally fall into the trap of thinking that history is set in stone. We look back and we look at ages of turmoil or ages of war, and we see a clear line of events, a clear progression that seems very logical. And so we look at the Battle of Rossbach, for instance, and we see how it progressed and we say, that was the way to win. They stumbled upon the way to win, when the truth is, there were many ways to win. They just happened to choose one, and it was the one that, that helped in that situation, but there are infinite applications. Any battle that you can think of in history, that wasn't the only way to win. It was the way that that particular commander chose, and it did win, but it wasn't the only way. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that the outcomes are infinite, that just because something is 
probable doesn't mean it is set in stone. So let's talk about probability. Again, you can fight against probability, we can, we can beat the odds, but how do we influence those odds in our favor? Well, the biggest one is to crush the army or to conquer their country. And it kind of needs to be the focus either way. Again, it's to be understood that getting one often gets the other. That being said, our focus should be on one or the other. Think about the objective-based games, the way Toto absolutely uh, acted in a way that I should have anticipated, but he took full advantage of. His focus was conquest of the country. The destruction of my army, incidental. Obviously, he was going for it. But capturing those objectives, that was the important portion of this. And even when we've chosen what our target is going to be, whether it be the army or the country, we then have to think in terms of general damage or targeted damage. Are we looking to just disrupt the entire system, hit on various fronts, looking for weak points, or are we going after one specific area? Are we engaged in a general line fight, or are we attempting to kill one particular person? Is it just a wild battle, or are we aiming for the enemy's HQs, for their weak points? It depends on the situation, but we often have to make a choice, and it needs to be made in the moment, and we hope that it's the right one. Another way to influence the probabilities of success is to break up their alliances and build our own. In terms of 40k, or any other sort of uh, mix-and-match team, when you're looking at the Imperium, you can play multiple Imperium armies together. They start losing bonuses if you do that, but you can. And so if we're breaking up our opponent's alliance, we're going to try to focus on those differences, on those clashes between the factions and break them up. While building our own, we're looking for the most seamless army that we can, even if it is multiple factions within the same overarching faction, we're still looking for that continuity that gets us there. Now, in terms of field fighting, it's kind of the same thing. We're trying to take advantage of the alliances that our opponents have made, try to make them work in our way, trying to make our own alliances. And this kind of ties directly with rise of political power and influence. And for this, we're actually talking about interactions between people. Because I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that the only place in human society that you will not find politics is a graveyard. Humans are political creatures by nature. We are social creatures who have a hierarchy. Therefore, politics in some form or fashion is going to exist. And this is no different within any of our societies, as anybody who's been a part of one will know. For instance, in between individual units, in something like Belagarth, there's often neutrality, until there isn't. You know, two of the, the different unit members from various sides become friends, you know, start hanging out. Somebody transfers from one to the other, potentially creating some bad blood, some friction. You have people from two different units who are dating, and that kind of brings those units together under their, their connection. Think of like the, the way that they married people between the various empires to assure that there was going to be some form of peace because everybody was related to everybody. And there were these entangling alliances all over the place as marriage was used as a power grab. 
an idea to expand one's influence. And so that happens in physical combat groups as well. You have these alliances that are sometimes made based on these relationships. Now, the converse can also be true. Let's say you have a massing, massive falling out between two people of different units. Well, then you might have open hostilities that develop, or even just a grudge. And those things, all of these things, influence the way that the battle takes place. It's not just tactics. It's not just strategy. It's politics. I'll bring the example up again of Toto and Eton. Both very nice guys. Both people who make their rounds, shake hands, hang out with various people, and they can walk just about anywhere on the field. And if they're not looking particularly menacing, people leave them alone. They'll walk around behind somebody's unit just kind of getting by, and folks will look back and be like, oh yeah, that's Toto. Anybody else, any random noob or somebody they don't know, they crush them. Crush them immediately. But Toto gets away with it because of the politics, because of his influence. And I'm not saying that we go out and maliciously try to break up friendships. I'm not saying we go out and purposefully make friends in order to increase our political power. There is no money involved here. We're not actually fighting for real resources. We're not getting real land out of this. The consequences of our battles are a few bruises, some good stories, and that's it. That's what we get out of it. So, uh, Playing to win to the point of attacking people's personal lives, not what I'm recommending necessarily. What I'm saying is to simply be aware of where those alliances are and try to grow our own. And really, the best way to do that is just to be nice. You know, be nice to people, treat them well, be generous. That's another good way to do stuff. If we're generous with people, that often wins us favor in their eyes. There's a lot of ways to do this. So. Keep it in mind. Another way that we can influence our probabilities of success is to wear out our opponent's army. And exhaustion leads to a loss of will. The more tired people get, the more sloppy that they become. I know I've been talking about him a bunch this episode, but again, I just played a game against him, so it's fresh on my mind. But this is something that Toto does, particularly when he's operating on his own. He will wound his enemy to such a point that they cannot necessarily come after him. He'll leg a few people, and then whoever is not legged will usually stay near those, those folks in order to get protection, to not be singled out. But in doing so, they severely hamper their mobility. What Toto will do is he just goes around him in a circle, just, just kind of hopping in a circle. Well, that's a, that's a strange way to visualize it. You know, when, when somebody's just kind of sitting there and not running, to the side, but just sort of shifting and, and transferring the weight, that's what you'll do. Just kind of quickly go around the outside of the circle, looking for weaknesses, looking for a mistake, and operating from a position of power. And one of the things he's doing there is wearing out the army, making luring people into a false sense of security and or wearing the nerves so thin that somebody steps out of line and makes a big mistake because going after Toto, for instance, in this uh, in this scenario, is is the mistake. That is the thing that we are trying not to do. But he'll draw people out, and when they step out, when they get tired of waiting, and they step out, that is when he'll kill them. That's when he'll he'll take advantage of the situation. But first, he exhausts their will. 
exhaust their desire to fight anymore. We can do this in, in, in 40k, in intellectual wargaming as well. If we know that we can't beat our enemy face to face, we can wear them out. We can draw them into situations that they are not necessarily suited for and make them pay for every step of the way. Again, potentially opening up opportunities, potentially making people sloppy. Not suggesting to slow play. That's cheating. Well, not cheating, but it's cheesy, very cheesy. Don't slow player opponents. What we're looking for is legitimate wearing out, wearing down of an army. And if the opposing army is just too powerful to overcome in any sort of direct fight, then we're going to target weak points. Then we're going to go after the places that really hurt. In something like foam fighting or any other sort of field fighting, we're looking for commanders. We're looking for people who are calling the shots and we're taking them out of the action and disrupting the communication and continuity of that particular group. We're looking for weak spots as well in, in terms of physical weak spots. If we see a, a, a cluster of newer people who are looking unsure of themselves, can usually push through there in order to open up another situation. If the two different flanks have started to split apart and there's a large open spot in the center, well, targeting that weak spot instead of the two larger groups coming on either side, well, that provides a massive advantage too. And in terms of 40k, these weak points could be anything from a, a weak unit or a unit that is too dependent on a particular character or another, another situation or, or a, a resource or a location. These weak points can exist in many different ways. If we're fighting somebody one-on-one, -on -one, if you notice that somebody isn't as quick on one foot as they are the other, if they plant their weight too much, well, we force them onto that foot. Keep them from being able to react in good time. Does your opponent continually leave their shoulder open? And I don't mean as like a feint. If they're doing it as a feint, then if you fall for it more than once, I, I got to pay attention. <laughs> but if they consistently leave their shoulder open, that's a weak point. And when somebody is sure of themselves, when they feel in, uh, superior, when they feel like they are invincible, that in of itself is a weak point because everybody has flaws. Everybody can be beaten. You know, I pride myself on being a pretty good player, but a newbie just beat me. And not for lack of trying, I did fight more conservatively than I should have. I was not as aggressive as I should have been, but I don't want to take away from his victory because he did great. He was targeting those weak spots. He was targeting my lack of mobility and keeping up with his. And speaking of keeping up, one of the best ways that we can influence the probability of our success is to keep up. Keep up with the, the Joneses or the Smiths. I forget the saying now. Of course, now that I'm on the air, I'm like, what is that euphemism? But you know what I'm saying. When you're looking around and other people are advancing, it's good to keep up with it or at least understand what the rules are so that when we break them, we break them properly. So we're talking about advances in theory. How are people approaching the game? What's the meta? I mean, I like to know enough of the meta in order to break it, in order to do something slightly out of the ordinary that isn't necessarily expected, but is I'm hoping to stay, I try to stay, a step ahead of the meta, which I think we all do. The worst thing to do is to settle on in one particular army 
and be like, okay, this is it. All these models exactly the way they are, and this army exactly the way it's built, this is perfect. Because you know what? That particular season, that series of fights, maybe it is perfect. But then rules change. New additions are made to the armies. And in this way, we have to keep up with the theory, if in a very least keeping up with the rules and not letting new abilities and new detachments and that sort of thing pass us by. In terms of Belagarth, it's a similar idea. There's a constantly evolving meta, a way of doing things, a way of fighting. It's kind of universal. And so to not know the meta, to be completely separate from it, is to invite folly. That's the same thing as theory versus reality. The meta is the application of that theory. So we got to keep up with that. If we, again, we don't have to obey it just because something is meta doesn't mean it's the most powerful way to do something, but we should understand what that baseline is in order to improve upon it. Practice is another thing that we need to keep up with. As us veterans start to age, a lot of us start to slack in terms of our application, the, the way that we attempt to learn new moves, new shots, new ways of doing things, the way that we don't keep up with our physical exercise, the, the amount of activity that we had to do in our 20s is no longer cutting it. There needs to be more effort made, but if we don't keep up with that practice, we're not going to be keeping up. And so practice is important for any of these war games whether it's with your friends in small groups or going to tournaments or matches of larger sorts more frequently, practice gets us familiar with what we want to do to achieve victory and definitely increases our probability of success. There's a reason that military groups drill certain activities. It's so that you can do it in the moment and not think about it. I do forms for this reason. I sit there and run uh, scenarios for Warhammer in my head in order to practice these different ideas. And lastly, we have the idea of tech. In an intellectual wargaming, like board gaming kind of idea, this means keeping up with the Joneses. There it is, I found it. That means getting new models, getting new books, keeping up with the tech. Pretty self-explanatory in that case. And that increases our probability of success massively. All the new Primaris stuff going out, whew, if you're a Space Marine player and you're not picking up the new Primaris stuff, I, ooh, I don't know what to say. There's some really cool units out there at this point. But for something like physical wargaming, the tech is also important. What kind of quality are the weapons? Are they up to the slickest of standards? There's, there's certain weapon types that tend to do well in different metas. That doesn't mean you can't break that rule. At the moment, and as it has been for a while, Belagarth has been going toward a lighter and a lighter build for their small one-handed weapons. And this is quicker. I mean, there's a good reason for it. You can, you can snap it around and there's amazingly uh, fast combo shots that can be done with these lighter weapons. But in some ways, I appear to have regressed with my red sword, which is a, a large two-handed sword. I'm using a heavier one, an older model that has a thicker core and a harder swing. And folks will, will have it and they're like, oh, you know, you should get yourself a new one like this one's old tech. And I'm, I said, no, I purchased it recently and on purpose because that heavy thing punctures through any block. These lighter swords have no staying power. 
And so you just punch through a block, no problem. The follow-through is fantastic. And so these, these whippy weapons absolutely have application. But so do the older ones. But I did it on purpose. So the weapons, whatever way you choose to do it, but keeping up with the tech, understanding the pros and cons of the weapons, important. And even stuff like garb. Garb goes through phases. Your different costuming goes through phases. And even though we want it to look nice, and even though we want to peacock a little bit, there's also the idea of utility. Does it get us where we need to be safely and most effectively? There's all sorts of things that look good off the field. But on the field, functionality comes first. So all of these different factors can influence our probability of success, making it easier for us to pave our path to victory. Nothing is ever completely assured. There are infinite applications of battle and there are infinite consequences of those battles. So these probabilities don't just work for us though. We can use them against our enemy because if we have a plethora of these probabilities on our side, let us say that we have conquered a good portion of their country, broken up their alliances and made friends with their friends, we have raised our political influence so that the surrounding countries do not want to come to the aid of our opponent. We have worn them down. They are ragged at this point. We've taken out some of their, their weak points and we have blown past them in theory, practice, and tech. Just for, for sake of argument, let's say we've done all those things. We can make this aware to our opponent. There's nothing that says that we have to sit there and be like, oh, I have these high probabilities of success. I'm going to sit here quietly with them and achieve my victory. There is something to be said for pointing these things out to the enemy. Remember, breaking their will to fight is the same as winning any other way. That's kind of the point. And if we get there before we destroy their military power and before we destroy the country, well, the more better. So we just let them know at that point. We can influence their approach to the fight by just letting them know where they stand in the probability. And even if they don't quit right there, it can be enough to shake them. It can be enough to break that fighting spirit. So today we've talked about the ends and means in war. The idea of two unequal powers going against one another and how theory doesn't often match reality. We defined military power, the country, and the will of the enemy in terms of how they apply to our games. We discussed the means by which war is to be prosecuted and how to influence the probability of our success in those battles. In our next section, we're going to be speaking with an old friend of mine, Juniper, and she was on in the very first season. But she's coming on with us to discuss these ideas of ends and means in war. discuss these themes that lead us to the path of victory is Juniper. Now you will likely remember her from the first season when she came on and, and was talking with us about the art of war. Now she's on for On War, uh, and, and, and not just is she a longtime friend of mine, but she also is a technical genius apparently because she taught me a way to plug in my microphones that not only saves time, but is far more efficient and I feel a dumb at the moment. So. Juniper, thank you so much for being here on the show, if only to help me plug in my microphones. 
Thanks for having me. Don't ask me for any tech support. <laughs> yeah, right. You just did something that I haven't figured out in a year and a half. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I'm qualified to teach this show for sure. <laughs> so Juniper, um, just to do a recap of your war game experience, uh, you're a part of Belagarth and Warhammer 40k, right? Yes, I am. I have, oh, I have two armies now. I have Necrons and I have Harlequins. Ooh, Harlequins. Mm -hmm. All right. And then you're, you're a part of the Urukai. Part of the Urukai and Belagarth, yep. Absolutely. And, and that, I think, is where we're going to be begin our discussion, is mm -hmm. one of the themes that we looked at in the path section was how forces of unequal power on paper should always end one way. In theory, if you've got unequal power, it's always going to end in the favor of the greater power. Right. But in the course of the Urukai, we have seen this uh, in both from both sides, from both the dominant side and from the weaker side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when the Urukai were at their strength, when they had the numbers and the people, they were still defeated from time to time. Oh, yeah. So what, even though they had that, that greater power, mm -hmm. they still saw defeat. What sort of things would lead to those downfalls? Oh, splitting the pack. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a big one. If you can get somebody in to, to carve off those flanks, mm -hmm. um, that tends to be the, the more common one. Um, you know, you get a day where everybody's hungover and we can't perform. Sure. <laughs> that's going to be a thing. Um <laughs> But, I mean, if you're talking, like, battlefield tactics, it's, it's usually cutting off the flanks. Or you happen to get those one or two lucky shots that takes out, you know, one of our, um, like, the main face sure. of the Urukai. That tends to be really demoralizing, and that'll that'll kind of do it, too. Well, especially if you're going after those those big commanders, the ones who are mm -hmm. hollering stuff out. You know, Forkbeard, yeah, Forkbeard. Valis, Magnus, mm -hmm. uh, folks who have no problem hollering out orders. Yep. You, you pop off some headshots there, and you've got a snake without a head. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it is it causes a lot of confusion in the unit because they don't know what to do anymore. Well, the cohesion is one of the big strengths mm -hmm. to it. Uh, being able to stay together and have that solid shield wall mm -hmm. and have the pike sticking out of it. And, and the same thing that is the strength there is also the weakness. Exactly, yeah. Because if you carve into that, like if you're able to get into the middle of the Arakai and split them apart, mm -hmm. they are now two smaller units, right. essentially. Yeah. That are not used to operating as two not, small yeah. units. Yeah. <laughs> So let's let's fast forward now to nowadays. The Urukai has seen a, a decline in mm -hmm. military presence. Mm -hmm. And yet they still are able to achieve victory. So now they're at the end of the end of that. They've got the power against them, and yet I still see the Urukai doing well. How how did they have to change their tactics? Or how did y'all, I guess it's it's not even a <laughs> a third person, but right. how did y'all have to change your tactics in order to um, face the reality of the field? Man, that's a good question. Um, some of it relies on reputation mm -hmm. um, and, you know, memory from players. And then they still, the Forkbeard's a big guy. He, he is. can be intimidating. Yeah. Um, so that has a part to play in it. Um, but we also work on, we work on tactics. Mm -hmm. You know, outside of, off the field, when we're in camp, we will have skirmishes and stuff like that to work mm -hmm. on, um, on, on specific, like, unit tactics. But also, we also have, like, words that are coded kind of um so that we know what it means to you know we're gonna say this to move left or whatever sure um so a lot of that kind of stuff we've had to learn to work together with the smaller group of people that we mm -hmm. have because we can't rely on the numbers sure yeah and and not having those numbers has mobility become a greater factor 
I, I almost would say no. It's been more communication mm. more than anything else. Sure. Yeah. And again, that's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it almost makes things easier because you're not trying to wield this massive force. Because I remember like when the Urukai were moving in one direction, you know, it's, it's a big hammer moving in that direction, mm-hmm. but it's hard to change the direction of a hammer sometimes because you just have that right. momentum. Well, it's, you go from the difference of like, you know, being the big boot and you can just squash the bug and now it's like a Rube Goldberg machine trying to figure something <laughs> out sometimes. Sure. Yeah. No, yeah. And, and uh, so again, theory doesn't necessarily match reality in these cases because if mm-hmm. theory was absolute, when the Urukai were at their strength, they would have won, won every battle mm-hmm. because of the, the forces that they had to bring to the field. Yep. And conversely, at this under, other end of things, because they are not at that same level, you would think that they would lose all mm-hmm. the time, but they don't. Right. So, yeah. chaos. Yeah. <laughs> Appropriately. Yeah. So, there's a lot of things that go into being on the field, though. It's not just numbers. It's not just skill. There are a lot of various activities that mm-hmm. kind of feed into what's going on on the field. So, you have things like cooking, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, if you're in camp and you're being fed good, nutritious meals, then your your team is going to be performing better on the field. <laughs> right. You know, I've seen people who go and they eat dry ramen and drink tomato juice <laughs> for the entire event. Are they getting nutrition technically? Right. Yes. Are they going to perform as well as somebody who's getting like a nice supper and that sort of thing? Um, do the Urukai offer anything along those lines, like a, a tent or a camp or anything like that yeah, for food? Yeah, we have Anvil. Anvil co- mm-hmm. And Chaos Force specifically, Anvil Cooks. Um, I mean, even we'll do pizza nights sometimes at sure. Chaos Wars. Uh, but yeah, we, there's always food in camp and everybody's always taken care of. So yeah, that's definitely, it's a morale booster. Sure. Yeah. And I bet it also helps with the energy, just the sheer mm-hmm. military energy on the field too. Yeah, absolutely. Word. Yeah. Well, other things would be like, I, I know this is a matter of uh, specialty for you, which would be garb. Mm-hmm. You've been a garb maker for as long as I've been in the sport. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... When you're doing that, though, I mean, I've, you've absolutely made feast garb, like really, mm-hmm. really nice garb that is made simply for for show. It's right. not necessarily yes. a martial form of garb. Mm-hmm. And yet you also make fashionable garb that is useful for the field. What are the different considerations taken in there? How do you take this application of this particular talent and make it something that's field worthy? Oh, the materials have to be more sturdy mm. for the field, absolutely. Because um, if if you make something for somebody and it's, you know, flimsy kind of fabric, you're going to rip it the very first time out and then they're going to be sad. Right, right. <laughs> and that sucks. Um, so a durability is going to be the, the biggest thing. Um, but also fabrics that don't chafe people. Mm. Um, yeah, stuff that breathes. Sure. Linen is a big one. Everybody loves that because it breathes really well. I love linen. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, those tend to be the the, the biggest things. Yeah. So it's it's not just a matter of how it looks, because I, I also think linen t- tends to look better mm-hmm. than it cotton. It does. It really does. But it's also functionality. Oh yeah, time. functionality. If you don't pair the functionality with the form, then you haven't done a good job. Right. Yeah. Well, and then it's just kind of useless. Like I've I've seen and or dangerous. Like mm-hmm. I've seen garb that doesn't really account for the reality of the battlefield, interfere with people's motion or, or anything along those lines mm-hmm. and can be physically dangerous to a person. Right, yeah. Like, I heard that story a thousand times of the guy who snapped yeah. his femur at Chaos yeah, Wars. Yeah, a pair of pants, yeah. Yeah, got, yeah. His, got his foot snagged on a big uh, uh, sleeve? What do you call it? I, it <laughs> just a pant leg? Yeah, it was a pant leg, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was... Down. 
it's it can be bad mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's probably the worst one i've heard so far but i've i've definitely sprained and and like fallen mm -hmm. and and not necessarily snapped a femur but <laughs> i definitely pay for for not taking that into account mm -hmm. so that needs to of course you know, terminate a battle be effective in mm -hmm. terms of of where it goes there yeah and it's it the clothing style in Bellegarth has actually evolved as people have gotten more serious about the sport so you started out with these the big Hakama pants like the big open leg ones and those are still really popular because they allow for motion and all that but there was a while where everybody wanted like the the roost pants with mm -hmm. the lacing at the ankles and then they wanted the cinched at the ankles and all that to to keep them from having their pants fly up over their head or right. you know, yeah. yeah yeah so that it, it does make a difference for some people yeah. And there's that, like you say, that constant evolution. Somebody mm -hmm. finds something that works and other people then copy it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, staying on that curve, making sure that your your tech is up to the same level as other people's tech. Yeah. Uh, that's important, even when it comes to garb. It is. It's super important. Yeah. Yeah. And when I made the switch to linen, I was so happy. I stopped <laughs> overheating. I stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was just a, a lot of really good perks. See, and I actually don't prefer linen. No. No. Huh. No, I like cotton because it feels lighter on me. I'm also not uh, actively engaged in combat most of the time. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I mean, then you get stuff like color combinations and everybody having the same symbol on them and that right, kind of stuff. Right, it's right, a right. it's a big deal. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's the other uh, application, like military application mm -hmm. of garb is to denote, uh, it's a uniform in a lot of ways. Yeah. It denotes what army you're a part of, status, rank. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and the Urukai absolutely have a, a whole system for yeah, that. Yeah, a ranking structure, yeah. With, yeah. It involves, like, colors and triangles. Yes, there, there's some colors that you can wear when you're a grunt or mm -hmm. a ravager, um, and then you can, you you know, can graduate up, I guess, to, to other colors. And then once you hit a certain rank, you can um, um, customize your own chompy skull. Sure. Yeah, but it, it, you know, stays in that same general style so that we know we're all Urukai. By the way, the, the chompy skull that the Urukai use is very similar to the orc symbol for Warhammer 40k. Yeah, we stole it. Yeah. So yeah, just in, in case you're wondering what is a chompy, that is a, <laughs> is a chompy. Um, so yeah, and, and, and so... <laughs> so yeah, the uh, it absolutely can be used for a, a lot more things than to just be a bodily covering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the sun has to be taken into account, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. Yeah. So in terms of like, let's, let's think about 40K. Mm -hmm. When we're looking at our arts and sciences there, even painting the army has a military application because in the most literal sense, you're able to actually take to the field in tournaments. Right. So even though painting, some people are in it for the painting. Like right. That's why they're there. Um, it's necessary even for those of us pointing itself <laughs> who don't particularly like painting in order mm -hmm. to actually participate in what's going on. I, I have found, especially with Necrons, because they're all that kind of, all of mine are that, that gray metal tone. Mm -hmm. There were some that I have lost on the field. Like, I have forgotten to move units because they weren't painted. Right. Yeah. So, that makes a big difference, too. <laughs> sure. No, I, I use all grayscale, except for the ones that I've had TF paint at this point. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, if I'm using those, I do a unit count, a little head count at the end. and be mm -hmm. like, okay, is everybody here? Nobody's just hanging out on the field. Yeah, I've missed an entire turn and been like, oh my god, my tomb blades. Yeah, <laughs> I was unhappy. <laughs> yeah, and the paint's good, like you said, for that. It, it mm -hmm. makes things stick out. You definitely can remember 
uh, where things are and get a much better visual representation. Yeah, for sure. I get giddy once I'm putting all my stuff out on the field and mm-hmm. I see them, they're all painted. I'm like, oh my God, my necrons are so pretty. Yeah. Oh yeah, a whole morale thing mm-hmm. goes into it at that point because <laughs> yeah. you feel proud. Yeah. Unless you look too close at my models and then I, not so much. You know, most people don't look that close. They just want to, they just want to, unless you're going into like a model competition, in which right. case they're going to get you a little a microscope or whatever. Yeah, I'm not going to those. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I mean, actually, you know what? I might enter my models in a model competition, but just be like, these were made by TF. His are fantastic. They are. He does an amazing he job. He really needs to just paint mine for me. <laughs> I, you know, I think he's available for commission. I, yeah. This stuff is worth it. I Absolutely. Love it. So, uh, yeah, even the, so the buying the building, the painting, the lore making, the rules research, all of those things of 40k, mm-hmm. they terminate in battle. Right. That's the reality that they're working towards. Again, theory theory is theory, but the reality mm-hmm. is is good. That may be why I'm so terrible with my necrons. Why? <laughs> I don't know any of the lore. The lore is so good though. I mean, you don't necessarily have to know the lore to no. play an army, but I, I like it. I think it's mm-hmm. flavorful. And that's what I was just going to say that I actually don't know the flavor of Necrons, really. Mm. You know, I know the rules and that kind of thing. But, yeah, there's no no spice to them for me. They're pretty cool. There's, I think there's a couple of books where the Necrons are like the protagonists coming mm. out, uh, which is which is really cool that Games Workshop is finally doing that. Because mm-hmm. the majority of the books are about space marines doing space right. marine things. And I like space marines. But it's also cool to read about the Imperial Guard, the Adventus Mechanicus, right. and then Xenos races, too. You know. I some of the new models they put out for Necrons have made me want to get into the lore just because they look so awesome. Well, there was a there was one of your shards that came out recently, right? That oh. like that model was amazing. The Void Dragon. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. That's the yeah, one. Yeah, that one is sick. It it's almost makes me box. want to play Necrons. Yeah, well. <laughs> you say it's still in the box. It's still in the box. Well, we haven't had a whole lot of call to play. We were recently mm-hmm. opening up to be able to do things, and I've I've been starting to get motivated to actually build my gene stealers because mm-hmm. it's like oh I can actually play against people again. Started to get into the the habit. See, my thing is I haven't taken it out of the box because I don't want to paint it because in my imagination it looks so great. I see. I need to give this one to TF. Gotcha. Yeah, because it looks great in my head, and I know it's not gonna come out that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, professionals professionals for those sorts of things mm-hmm. but we digress we digress painting's awesome though i think that's the the point of this um so all these things kind of help us influence our probabilities right mm-hmm. you know if, if we've got the right garb if we've got a good uh, meal a good night's sleep all of these things going for us um it increases our probabilities mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other things that can do that too uh, including like obviously crushing your army crushing the opponent's <laughs> army Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean like a board wipe or just completely destroying. But if we're talking about an objective based game, right. which a lot of 40k games or missions are now, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of uh, Belagarth seem to be at, at events, yeah. especially uh, at that point, crushing the army is great. It helps you achieve the objective, it increases your probabilities of winning, mm-hmm. but it's not necessary. Right. It's. I mean, it's almost easier to just get the objective than to worry about killing every last person on the field or every last model. Well, I, I would draw our listeners' attention back to the intro where I was talking about my fight with Toto and how he absolutely played the objective. Like, I, I won in terms of model count at the mm-hmm. end. I'd, I'd lost minimal amounts of dudes. But he won in terms of points. Right. So his strategy was better than mine. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's cool that he won. 
But yeah, points is, you undervalue it sometimes too. Because it's always, oh, I can get more points later. Yeah. But I haven't come to appreciate it fully in ninth edition because a lot of the missions in 8th edition, I could just do my Adeptus Mechanicus castle back in a corner. You know, you had to walk at me, so good luck. And that was my game. That was how I won just about every single time was my Honor Gradoon crawlers. Mm -hmm. God, I love them. Yeah, see, I'm going to make a gagging motion, but they can't <laughs> see me do that, so. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, would, you wouldn't believe the number of people, that the Stygians that I've had on the show that have agreed with you on this particular... That they're gag-worthy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't work so well, this edition. Like, you actually have to go and achieve and, <laughs> and get objectives, so I'm it's... so heartbroken to hear that for you. <laughs> it's just a difference in play style, you know? Right, that's fair. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I did not increase my probabilities of success because I just, I wasn't aggressive enough mm -hmm. in a big way. He was also able to kind of break up my continuity, make me split mm -hmm. my, my attention between two different things. The first round was fine. I was able to just target one thing and I got it off the board. Right. And then I started getting confused and targeting multiple things. And at that point, I stopped losing my potency. Okay. So what he was able to do was break up those alliances. Right. And I had to like scramble to get them together. But this works on the field as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it absolutely does. If you have if you have the Urukai paired up, especially with the size that we are now, mm -hmm. being a smaller unit, if you have us paired up with... Um, Oh, God, now I'm spacing any names. <laughs> Help me, Malark. The, the Pirates, the Forsaken. Oh, the... yeah, yeah. Pirates and Forsaken, that totally works. Okay. But if you have them paired up, even with both of those, mm -hmm. if if you're able to pull the, the Forsaken off and you get their attention, that's, you know, a third of our army that just went off and, and did something else. And sure. it, yeah, we will get crushed that way. And it happens, it happens quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially since if you have those satellite units, mm -hmm. like, yeah, the Urukai is the center, and then you've got the pirates and the Forsaken as kind of satellite units. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there isn't the same understanding, the same modes, especially as they that started to get further and further apart. Because mm -hmm. it used to be that, like, everybody in the Forsaken was also Urukai. Mm -hmm. And then that slowly started to change. You started to have Forsaken who weren't Urukai. Right. And the modes of communication, the modes of operation on the field changed. Mm -hmm. And so you have that disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and especially when they're not doing like the skirmish battles with us in camp and that kind of thing, they don't have they don't know the way that we that we communicate. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a weakness, and mm -hmm. that allows it to be broken up. Or any of the big teams that come together like at an event, they're like mm -hmm. okay, we're just going to fight together at this event. But sure, they're big. Yeah. But if you manage to splinter them, they're actually at a disadvantage because they're expecting somebody on their flank to behave as they exactly would behave but that's not the reality yeah and then all of a sudden that flank is gone and you're not you didn't even notice it yeah right. and it happens quick yeah so breaking up those alliances uh absolutely absolutely essential mm -hmm. but not just on the field we've yeah. also we've also just talked politics you and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it may be kind of cold-blooded but you know even off the field you've got these alliances you've mm -hmm. got these um political things that are going on yeah. And and much like, I don't know, much like in the medieval times, if you've got two different people from two different units dating, it tends to make those units a little closer, or realms for that matter. And it's almost like the practice of, you know, this, this prince from this land would marry a princess from this land mm -hmm. and it bound their houses <laughs> and that sort of thing. Yeah, we've had a lot of... Because we do, you have to apply to be in the archives. Right. So you have to interview and get through that process. And we've had a lot of couples that want to join and we try to be mindful of that uh, because it, it can cause problems right. and especially if you get someone who is already 
in one unit previously and is their significant other joins the Urukai and now they're thinking about it too. And it's mm-hmm. one of those, you know, do you really want to be here or is this just that whole alliance thing? And yeah, it can get sticky. Sure. Because mm-hmm. then if things go south, it goes the other way around. Mm-hmm. Let's, so let's say you got two units that are quote unquote bound by marriage. Mm-hmm. And let's say the two people that were a part of that quote unquote marriage, uh, things go sour there. Yeah. Well, it can easily influence the politics between those two units oh, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Or realms for that matter. I've, I've, I've seen it in realms mm-hmm. where, where somebody, they're just like, you know what? We all hate this realm all of a sudden. <laughs> right. We can't really explain why, but we all hate them. Yeah. Yeah, that happens, unfortunately, often in Bellegarth. Well, it yeah. influences the field, too, and that's that's kind of why I bring it up, is it's not just, um, you know, people being petty off, mm-hmm. off the field, or people just being people. Politics exist everywhere. Yeah. Um, but it's not just that fact. It's that it absolutely affects what's on the field. Mm-hmm. You know, if two people are, like their units are aligned because they're both of their houses mm-hmm. have come together, then they're as likely to engage each other on the field. Yep. They're going to be hostile towards other people. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've got this, this solid animosity. Yeah, especially if you have a solid, solid animosity where you once had that partnership, you've now lessened yourself because of it. Yeah. I like to draw attention to that Chaos Wars where the Gelf were supposed to work with the Urukai. <laughs> and they betrayed. <laughs> I mean, that was slick, but yeah. Yeah, that and, stuff happens. And because we found out, I was part of the Urukai mm-hmm. at the time, because we found out, um, I'm pretty sure that the next successive, all of the different like banner battles, we just slammed into the Gelf every single time. Yeah, we're yeah like, we did. We're not going to win because everybody's arrayed but against us. You. <laughs> You're not going <laughs> to yeah. Yeah. So that just a little thing, a little bit of politics there mm-hmm. makes a huge difference on the field. Yep. Well, and, this, and if you're around camp and you're chit-chatting with people and you're personable and, and likable and all that kind of stuff, it makes people want to band with you. Right. You know, much more frequently than if you're walking around being a jerk. <laughs> and there's something to be said for that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something to be, to be said for, you know, when you're off field. Not just hanging out in your own camp, exactly. but going over and shaking hands and yeah. kissing babies. Okay, maybe not kissing, <laughs> kissing babies, uh, especially at an event. Yeah, oh. no. No. <laughs> but uh, you know, doing not doing the rounds is a the weird PR way to work. phrase it. Yeah. yeah, and even if it's not directly PR, it's just nice to be connected. Yeah, I mean that's what we go to events for, anyways. You right. know, but yeah, it makes a big difference. And and in terms of affecting the field, like think of somebody like Toto or Eton. Folks mm-hmm. that uh, get along with just about anybody. I don't know people that have serious beef with Toto. Gotta hate Toto. Yeah, no. right. <laughs> I'm not good at sarcasm, but that was sarcasm. Or again, Eton. He's he's mm-hmm. one of the most well-liked people I know. And because of this, they can slink around on the backfield behind units that would not let anybody else do yeah. it because of that kind of political yep. understanding. Absolutely. It is sneaky and I love it. <laughs> if a random person, like a random noob, tried to do that... Uh, they get massacred. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Toto's back there and they're like, oh, oh it's Toto. It's cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool right up until they start to get diminished in yeah. numbers and he comes up and kills them. But even then they're not mad because he's right. a nice dude off the field. Yeah. Something to be said for it. So when we're looking at territory... Like we, like we discussed in the previous section, there's a, a, a direct correlation between territory and military power. How much of the field or table is controlled as, as a relation to how much the army is opposed or, or the strength is mm-hmm. going there. Um, and, and one of the good reasons for this, I think, is so that you're not diminishing power 
if you have the lower power, as it were, mm -hmm. it seems to make sense to reduce your territory size in order to not have parts that are as weak. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been so many units I've seen over the years that'll be this tiny unit on this big field where it's this grand melee and they're just hanging in the back corner. They're just chill. Nobody's watching us. Mm -hmm. And they will end up in the end of the fight. And taking the field because they just, they held their territory, mm -hmm. they didn't expand, and they were quiet, nobody noticed them, and they ended up winning. Which was so much more effective than them just sprinting oh, into yeah. the melee or, yeah, or even backstabbing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, there is a time and a place for it. Mm -hmm. um, but often, the reduction of that field size also reduces your opportunities. Because in those cases it works out, but in, in terms of Warhammer 40k... If mm -hmm. I've managed to be pushed into a corner and I'm having a hard time getting out of it, it doesn't matter how much of my opponent's army I kill mm -hmm. at that point. I am being held up. Yes. And that territory out there is being maintained. So even if their military power is dropping, they still have all this space to work with. Yeah, I mean, you can shoot that line of models in front of you all you want, but if they're holding those, those, uh, oh man, now I'm going to space that word too. Uh, objectives. Objectives, thank you. I'm like, tactic points is not the word. <laughs> <laughs> the things you want to control to score the points. Those and, things. Yeah. The important things, yeah. If they're holding those, you can kill the, the line in front of you all day long. It won't make any difference. They're still racking up points. Right. Yeah. Right. So it is sometimes they have a direct correlation. But one of the things that Clausewitz talks about how it's, is how it's superior to destroy the army than it is to occupy territory. Do you agree with that? It depends on the war. It depends on the war. Sure. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're talking like Belagarth Battlefield and it's just a straight grand melee, mm -hmm. then, yeah, kill them all. Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, you're, yeah, you're talking... Warhammer is more like chess. In a lot of ways, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so you have to be more strategic about it. And I think, I yeah, I mean, Toto proved that pretty well mm -hmm. right off the bat, yeah. Now, in terms of winning in a grand melee... You don't have to kill everybody in order to do that. I mean, you do technically have to kill everybody to do that. But if you break their will, if okay. suddenly they don't want to fight anymore because they think it's inevitable that they're going to lose, mm -hmm. or they just... That's usually the big one. They think yeah. it's inevitable it's going to lose. They don't actually fight in terms of a way, like in a way that could give them victory. So even if there was a chance at victory, it's snatched away. Yeah, you'll see people just sword overhead and... Call, call themselves dead. Or, or in 40K, uh, Angus and, and us, were, we were talking about this during our book study. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of times that turn two or three uh, that he just calls it mm -hmm. because he feels like he's going to lose. Right. And whereas I'm sitting there being like, you don't know. Mm -mm. You know, you can look at this in theory and say, well, in theory, I'm going to lose. Right. But theory it's a, and reality. It's a little bit easier to see it in Warhammer, though. True. Um, but but in Belagarth, man, you never know. You never know. You never know. I've watched Sumatai on the field, the last Urukai standing, and is like, I think he got a spear or something like that, and he was fighting against like five other people, and he mm -hmm. took every one of them out. And if he had just given up, he would, we would have lost that battle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there is something to be said for that perseverance mm -hmm. and that timing and that spirit. They all want that desperation, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and that's, you know, going back to Sun Tzu, he says, mm -hmm. never, never completely encircle your enemy. Leave them one little way out. Yep. Give them a sliver a of, bit hope. of hope. Yeah. Because yeah. they know fight is hard. They want to go They want to go toward that. Yeah. That is very true. Yeah. But a desperate enemy fights like a desperate mm -hmm. enemy. Cornered tiger, <laughs> as it were. Well, Juniper, we are just about out of time here. 
The time moves very that quickly. Really fast, I, I told yeah. you it does. I know. I know. That's fair. <laughs> last time it was longer. Well, last time we were here for like two hours, and, and I started to figure that that was cruel <laughs> to do to guests, especially ones who were not used to talking about military science or mm -hmm. history for two hours straight. Um, I mean, I was used as a weapon in basic training. Uh, as a, as a, as a, did I not tell you about this? No. Oh yeah. Um, of course at, at first the drill sergeants are like, okay, we're going to give you push-ups or sit-ups or whatever in order to punish you. But you know, about halfway through the cycle, we had some mouthy people in our, mm -hmm. in our company. So we got buff. <laughs> so about <laughs> halfway through the cycle, push-ups weren't punishment anymore. Right. And we could do push-ups all day long and still be okay. And so at that point they had come to figure out that my lectures on history were far more quote-unquote painful than their push-ups were because nobody wanted to listen to that. I'd get up there and give like a half-hour lecture on the socioeconomic implications of World War II. See, I had the most fun with that. See, you'd be fine. Yeah. You'd be fine. But most of my, and, and like the guys who were in my particular um, platoon, mm -hmm. they thought it was hilarious. Right. They'd be sitting there just kind of like, ah, Briard's up there. That's funny. <laughs> And then, you know, the, everybody else was just like, oh, my God, this is nails on a chalkboard. So you're, you're like, you're the teacher that you can always ask one more question to get out of them, like, assigning homework. You know, I had one of those in, mm -hmm. in my sophomore year. He was my English teacher. And all you had to say was Shakespeare. Okay. And he'd go off for the rest of the entire thing. And you wouldn't get any homework, no other assignments. Mm -hmm. He was like, gosh, I just went off. So I'm not going to assign anything. It was yep. like, we all know that. Yeah, you're that guy. <laughs> all right, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Well, yeah, we're, we got to uh, wrap up here, but thank you again, Juniper. Yeah, I love, I love coming here, yeah. Well, you'll be on again, I'm sure. I'm good. <laughs> but now we're going to move on to talking about the wars of the First Coalition. final section, we're going to take a look at what was going on across the border. We've been speaking primarily about what was happening in France prior to the revolution and what that did to politics in Europe. But there were other forces at play that we haven't taken a close look at. So today I wanted to do a little bit of an examination of what was going on within the Habsburg monarchy and how they came to kind of be involved in what was going on in France. Now, you recall that the Habsburgs were a longtime enemy of France, who had recently become allies. Now, that chaffed at the French, oh, and it also chaffed at the, uh, the Habsburgs' subjects as well. Recall that they had been in conflict and that there was suddenly an alliance. Now, it was in favor of the Habsburg monarchy, so... It wasn't as bad as the peace was for France, but it still caused a lot of tension. Now, the time period that we're speaking about was when Joseph II was Holy Roman Emperor. And his tenure, at least this last portion of it, was fraught with peril. He was watching his kingdom deteriorate before his very eyes. During the 1980s, there was quite a bit of trouble in Vienna and the surrounding areas. One of the catalysts to this unrest was the rapid and radical societal reforms that was, were brought forth to try to equalize society and uh, create other opportunities and kind of mix up the rigid structure that there already was. 
But this effectively alienated all vested interests in the monarchy. Because you imagine you've got these folks who have, you know, invested quite a bit of time and currency and loyalty to a throne that is now depriving them of their status and of their, like, rank in society. It is diminishing their presence. And so these vested interests, uh, they, they, there's unrest, and then there's sedition, and then there's rumors and rumblings of outright rebellion. This isn't helped by a series of demoralizing defeats to the Turks. Recall that there is nothing that dooms a state more than wasted resources like this. Uh, this happened in France too, if you'll recall. Uh, these, these long, drawn-out campaigns that yielded no results, no gains from what was going on, and yet instead cost the, the state more time, more money, more resources than folks were willing to allow. So these demoralizing defeats, particularly because Joseph II was personally in charge of the military action, really did not look good. And so in response to this, you had multiple provinces within the Habsburg uh, Empire that were uh, considering seceding from it. They were being helped from outside forces on occasion. The Prussians were definitely courting some of the, the smaller provinces, trying to convince them to come on over. But there were some that just saw the inefficacy of what was going on, that the monarchy was no longer able to put forth legitimate force, that it was no longer able to protect itself or its interests. They had wars and conflicts on multiple fronts at this time. They had the Turks to the south and the southeast, a force that was not to be taken lightly. The Poles were to the northeast, the Prussians to the north, and there was a near certainty that Spain and the Sardians would move to seize Habsburg holdings in Italy. This did not create confidence. It looked as though the Habsburg, Habsburg Empire was crumbling. It looked as though the wind had gone out of it and that it was soon going to fade, and so the vultures were circling. And so this is what Joseph II is dealing with. The man, is, he's got tuberculosis, and he's, it's terminal, and he's getting close to his death in 1789. Prior to this, he had appealed to his allies, the Russians, another very strong force in the area, to help them out, in particular with the Turks. And the Russians had given honeyed words and promises and all this sort of thing, but years went by and nothing was occurring. So it seemed as though they were hung out to dry, that they were in a, a terminal position when it came to the wars and the state itself. And then something marvelous happened, a re reinvigoration of the state, because suddenly you had an influx of resources because Russia decided to go on the offensive. And the Austrians went along with them. And so this, this was a boon to the state. This was a, a reinvigoration of energy. This was another time of looking for the gains that come with conquest. Now, the Austrian army did have a bit of a handicap because they were dealing with outbreaks of several diseases, including malaria and TB, which is what Joseph II had. So this, this had a good portion of the army that was not performing at its best, that was kind of down for the count. And so it was a, a task to make sure that this force was able to complete 
what it could. And, and folks knew it was on the line. Joseph II and his field marshal Loudon, they definitely knew what, what it would mean for defeat. And so even with all of this disease that was kind of holding them back, they still made moves. And they were making moves toward Belgrade. Now, Belgrade, which is located in modern-day Serbia, was a really big deal during this time. Belgrade was the key to that entire region, a, a very resource-rich region that also controlled the influx and outflux of folks. It was, it was kind of a, a guardian bastion. And so the, the Turks had to take it to get into Europe. Uh, easily, they could go around, but that was the, the surest route. And the Europeans had to take it in order to fight with the Ottoman Empire themselves. So it was a very, very, very important strategic position. And what it consisted of was a castle, a town, and then several suburbs around it. It was only approachable from one side. The other ones had, had rivers on them, and so the only side that could be properly sieged was the southern, or the, the, the southeast side. So, we're not just going to dwell <laughs> on the societal things this episode. I think I've given you a decent framework without going into the detail that we did with France of kind of what the Habsburgs were dealing with. So let's take a look at the Siege of Belgrade. It's a battle, so it's, it's, uh, it's going to be exciting in that regard. And I thought that this would be a good one because uh, the anniversary of this battle is just before this episode is actually going to come out. So I, it seems rather appropriate, and it's a battle that demonstrates several of the principles that we went over in the first section. So let's take a look at this. The Siege of Belgrade took place between the 15th of September in 1789 and the 8th of October in the same year. This conflict was between the Habsburg monarchy and the Ottoman Empire. The Habsburgs were led by Field Marshal Ernst von Lauden, Lauden? Yeah, Lauden. And the uh, Ottomans were led by Osman Pasha. Now, the Habsburgs had an absolute number advantage. I saw two different numbers in two different sources, and, I mean, one was double the other. So uh, either, both of them are impressive. One was 62,670, and the other one was over 120,000, which I think this one is probably more accurate. So we're going to go with the 62K number. But the Ottomans only had 9,000 infantry, well, well, well under any sort of halfway mark. Like, we're, we're talking massively outnumbered at this point. However, they did have more guns. The Habsburgs only brought 200 siege guns with them, but the Ottomans had 456. Now, remember, this is a time in history where artillery ruled the field. And so this disparity between uh, the number of field pieces that were brought really made a difference, in particular with the speed at which the Habsburgs were able to approach the site. The other issue with having to approach from the southeast side, which was the only way to be able to get in successfully, was that you had a danger of being trapped by a relief force. Remember that the Turks were, were coming from the southeast and the south, and so that particular side, you could be sandwiched really easily and not be able to get out. And so Loudon divides the army into three separate parts. There's a relief guard that's kind of put on that southeastern side to make sure that nobody's going to get close to the main action. Uh, they put up a siege battalion or, or a siege unit up on the west bank and a siege unit up on the east bank. 
all with clear views of that southernmost suburb. The siege in its earnest begins on the 16th of September, when the siege works and the bombardment was underway. Now, this bombardment was really important. They were seeking, of course, to weaken the walls. This doesn't happen instantaneously, by the way. I know in a lot of movies they show just like a brief cannonade and then the walls come down. No, no. Most sieges, particularly in this time when you had walls that were reinforced for this particular reason, it would take days, weeks to breach those walls. And so having solid positions where they could fire on it accurately was important. The weather, however, was not on their side. The sappers, which we discussed before, they're like military engineers, were delayed by the rain. But they were under their good artillery support, and so they made it to about 150 yards of the Reisenstadt suburb, which is that southernmost suburb, by the 20th of September. Now, even though we, we had just mentioned that the Turks, the Ottomans, had an advantage when it came to guns. Now, they were also rooted in one place. It's not like their guns could, could really reposition anywhere and, and have that be effective. They were on the walls. They were in the fort. So their position was rather well known. And they could be kept under, under cover fire by uh, in, like in bombardments from the east and the west bank, which they could move around and get the angles that they needed to shoot at who they needed, in particular keeping those top walls clear so that the sappers were able to get closer without really being in super danger of being shot. And so they make their moves. They're, they're moving up, they've got their parallels, and they're digging their trenches forward, and it is slow, and it is slogging. But then by the 20th September, they make it real darn close. The 30th of September is when the movement is actually planned for. The rain has stopped, the ground has had a chance to firm up, but there is increased pressure upon the attackers because there is rumor of a relief force in the area. And they knew this to begin with, and so they're, they've got this on their mind, that they really have to get through with this siege quickly to avoid being trapped, to avoid the monarchy falling, because they can't take one more loss. They can't take another hit to, the, to their rep reputation. It is imperative that they win this campaign, and they know it. And so on the 30th September, again, that's when the plan was was decided to go forward. And Loudon or orders an early morning intense bombardment, just absolutely brutal, and it brings down that particular wall. And they're able to breach it with four columns. The Turks, to their credit, fight in this suburb for four hours. For four hours, they, they repel this much larger force, and it's like house-to-house -house fighting. You know, they're having to clear each building individually because folks are coming out and attacking them at every angle. It has, it's keeping the, the Habsburgs absolutely on their toes. But eventually they push them back and the Ottomans had lost about one-ninth of their troops. Now they need to preserve their forces. They can't waste anything. And so even, even this one-ninth loss of troops, even though it may seem somewhat trivial, is not for them. Every single body is precious. However, to make sure that these gains are not lost, the Habsburgs are, have trenches dug in that spot, and they're able to move their guns up, and they're maybe able to get proper 
uh, troop placements in there so they don't have to worry about being repulsed by sorties. And at this point, they're able to sustain meaningful bombardment of the fortress itself before the walls prevented them from being able to get a really good angle on that, on that middle castle, that middle fortress. But now they've got the angles. And so they are, they're able to do this bombardment and they're in a really good position at this point. They are reinforced by knowledge, by information. And this information comes that the Ottomans have been defeated at the Battle of Rimnik. And this was the relief force that Pasha was counting on. This is the relief force that he had placed the majority of his, his confidence in because, you know, they could hold this, this position for a long time, but that relief force was going to be the, the breath of life. It was going to be what actually won the campaign. And so now that that wasn't coming, it did not do good things for morale within the castle. Now, as I mentioned before, there were sorties. They did launch little small hit and, and run tactics to try to break up uh, the sappers and try to break up the formations, but they were unsuccessful. Again, they're working against a force far greater than their own. And so they go back to the defensive. And now we move forward to the 6th of October. Again, this entire time you've had bombardment. Throughout this entire time, nobody's been really able to sleep. If you're in a castle or a fortress that's under bombardment, that's stressful. You're not going to get a good night's sleep in that position. The walls are rumbling. There's blasts constantly. And at this point, they definitely had incendiary rounds. So they're raining down fire upon the castle. There's no way that there weren't strained relations within there. That Pasha, like, I, I, I haven't read any accounts of what was going on in there, but I can't imagine Pasha was having a good time trying to command this particular area. So on the October the 6th, they began this super intense bombardment. And Pasha, you know, can't really take it that much anymore and says, it sends out a messenger and asks for 15 days to consult with the Ottoman Empire and kind of figure out what he should do in this situation. But Loudon says that he would not give him 15 hours. We're not going to let up. We're not going to make this less intense. You give us this fort or we just keep going. That's the game here. You know, to give them this 15 day reprieve, you know, they could have, you know, coordinated with other relief forces. They may have been able to reinforce their position with some sort of new tech. There were all sorts of things that could go wrong with such an idea. And, and Loudon is having none of it. So on the 7th of October... <laughs> A parley is called. Pasha realizing that his position is somewhat hopeless. And that, I mean, there's women and kids in there. We're not talking about just a military garrison. This is a, an actual town that has actual people living in it. And so you got, you know, kids and wives and old folks and uh, all sorts of folks, non-coms, that are they're there as well. And Pasha has to think about them. This isn't just some glorious death in the name of the empire. It isn't a last stand on a hill. This is a place where there's civilians, a place where there's civilians who could get sincerely hurt by an invading force. At this time, there was a great deal of animosity between Christians and Muslims. And a lot of those frustrations played out over this area. I mean, if you look up the siege of Belgrade, you're going to see tons of them. 
There's so many sieges of Belgrade because, again, this position was so crucial to this area. Kind of like controlling Constantinople. You, you control, uh, or Istanbul, or whatever you want to call it. That, that was, it's the gateway between two civilizations, between two lands, between two empires, typically. And then you start moving down and you got it, but I digress. I digress. There's a lot of pivotal cities, particularly at this time, and Belgrade is one of them. So a parlay is called. Then they chat. And then the next day, on October the 8th, military and non-coms alike are granted safe passage out of the fortress in return for its surrender. They're not barbarians. I mean, there, there is absolutely barbaric acts during this time frame, don't get me wrong. And there was some absolutely terrible things that were done between Christians and Muslims. But this wasn't one of them. Loudon sees the benefit of mercy. The benefit of having a way to appeal in diplomacy. Because it's not just this battle that you have to worry about. It's the diplomacy afterwards. And if one has shown themselves to be merciful, if one has shown themselves to be uh, reasonable, then other commanders are more likely to be reasonable with them. The state itself will not be as angry. A surprise attack, a cruel attack, motivates people to, to arms. I'm reminded of uh, America after September the 11th. People were mad. After they got over being scared, they were mad and they were out for blood. And whether or not you agree with the action in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, all of that was fueled by that fervor, that need for revenge. And so Loudon, I think, is trying to prevent some of that here. So it's a humanitarian issue. It's, it's ethical to do it, but also it's really good for politics to make sure that you're not seen to be a slaughterer of, of women and children. And so he returns home. Joseph returns home to a renewed empire. Everything is better. The, the, the certainty is back in the monarchy. Everybody is, is back into the, the idea of the Habsburgs. They have returned. They have proved that, that they have teeth, that they, have, that they can defend their own territory, that they can take care of their own. And this is huge. Because again, the, the empire, the monarchy was on the verge of collapse. It was, it was like two ticks away. And so the Habsburgs avoided going the way of the French monarchy through this success in the military, which the French were just not able to achieve during their time, during the slow deterioration of their military. Now let's take a look at this real quick, because I think this battle really points out some of the things that we were speaking of in the first section. The first one is the symmetrical relationship between military power and land. And we see that here, absolutely. The, the castle of Belgrade itself doesn't necessarily destroy armies, but it is and ends because it is the, the occupying that country intensifies one's military power. In relation to that, when taking it, one has to have quite a bit of military power to deprive the enemy of it. It's a crucial point, not to be left undefended. Even these 9,000 infantry held out for quite a long time, and we're looking at nearly a month of holding out against a, a massive siege. That's impressive. But there's a symmetrical relationship. And so as the relief force wasn't able to come, that 
imbalance occurred, and eventually the Ottomans, their their legs were out from under them. From no, no, no. <laughs> excuse me, their legs were out from under them. The next point I want to point out is the wearing out of the army and how it drops morale. When this first started, Pasha was very boastful. He was extremely confident that he was going to win, extremely confident in his position and in that the uh, Austrians were just going to be wasting their time. And so morale was high. The will of the enemy to fight was high. But then the news of that defeat comes. It's like, ooh. And then, of course, there's the intense bombardment, as we said, the crashing, the explosions, the incendiaries lighting the sky, not relaxing, not a place to be able to cool your nerves. And so we see that this wearing out broke the will. They may have been able to hold out longer. Who knows? There may have been another relief force that they would be able to to bring up, while unlikely. (laughs) But nonetheless, this wearing out of the opponent was very effective for achieving that surrender. And the last portion is making sure that your opponent knows that their probability is exceptionally weak. Remember that this news of, of their relief force not coming was demoralizing as heck. It was, it was a matter of those probabilities shifting severely toward the Austrians. And then the probabilities also shifted by showing the excessive amount of time and the price in lives in order to keep this position. It just wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it in the end. And so, again, they retire. The Habsburgs are able to take Belgrade. It is a cause for celebration. Vienna is absolutely a light. Joseph II returns to um, crowds in the streets, screaming in, in joy. He returns to monarchs, not monarchs, uh, but but to um, other high-ranking members in his k- kingdom. And they are so pro-Marnike at this point, it's not even funny. This was a huge boon for the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. But there's a dark side to this story. Because if you recall, Marie Antoinette was a Habsburg who was married to Louis XVI. And about a week before the return of Joseph II to Vienna, Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI were taken by the French mob. And so this is how everything kind of ties together. You see the resurgence of the Habsburgs while the royalty in France become very threatened. It's not just a matter of a state that is sovereign, that is challenging to the other monarchies. Well, that is extremely very much a part of it. It's also a matter of people have relatives in this area. Joseph II is highly motivated to get involved in these wars against France because of what they did to Marie Antoinette. And there were tons of other nobles from other places that had been married here and there. And so that's part of the reason there was such a violent reaction against what happened in France. Because again, you you see something like this, it's family. You got to take care of family as Vin Diesel would say. So yeah, I, I, I think uh, this, this point has been decently well demonstrated. The Habsburgs were on the outs. Everything was kind of going poorly for them. And then they launch into this extremely su- successful campaign where they're able to take an extremely important position. But on the, on the other side, 
France is starting to descend into anarchy, and soon the heads will be literally rolling. So, I thought that this was a cool little battle to explore for this particular section. Um, I'd say that we're moving on to, to the proper War of the First Coalition next time, but I keep finding framing information <laughs> that I think is important. So, I will just promise this. We will eventually get to the War of the First Coalition. Perhaps next episode. Perhaps three episodes from now. I don't know. But we're going to find out together. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>